0: Wait, did you just go Mission Impossible? I did, dude. <laughs> da-da, da-da. Fun fact: That is the
1: song that made me want to play bass when I was a little kid. Freaking love nice.
0: it! What a terrible story. Thank you,
1: thank you very much. Um, I
0: just didn't want your confidence build up too dude, much just, early on.
1: I'm excited. We're gonna have Tom Cruise in a couple months on the pod. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Scientology. Stoked. Plenty of questions. Plenty yeah. of questions for that guy. But
2: James, since I know you listen to every episode, what did you think of my woo? I changed it up a little bit
0: from this last episode. Yeah. I have not listened to it yet. too quick, Brad. Too quick. We're recording it on Monday. It just dropped. I, uh, it did just drop and I've been doing a lot of, uh, work with our cotton, cotton candy company lately. And so, um, I've just been exhausted. Mm-hmm. So much of the time, because I've made thousands of cotton candy containers in the last few weeks. So, so that well, means good.
1: that you're taking us on a Vegas weekend, the three of us, we're going to go hang out, go to the Mirage, ride a roller coaster on top of a building.
0: Isn't that one of the ones that um, like they, they robbed in Ocean's Eleven or whatever?
1: Yeah. Dude, what a great movie. Did you talk about a magician, Brad? Tell me he you did. just talked about a magician. <laughs> and he went David
0: Copperfield
2: of all of them. That's the only one I know. He's had what's a lot of work guys? done. He's had a has lot. He? O- he's been around a long time. He has. What's the, what's the other guy that used to have a TV show? David Blaine. No, he's, he's, no, dude, I would love. Maybe to that's see who David I was thinking Blaine. of. David Blaine. But Elevate that's who I probably meant to say, and me. I said David Copperfield. But that's not who I was just about asking, or that's not who I was asking about. Uh, There was another guy. Um, He looked like a gothic person. Oh man, he had a TV show for Marilyn Manson.
0: Chris Angel, Mind Freak.
2: Chris Angel, Mind Freak. Mind Freak. freak. Yeah. Apparently, he's in Vegas.
0: He looked like um, he was a uh, the magician member of Skillet.
1: Ah, yeah, that was totally a look in the early 2000s. It was what a mistake yeah <laughs> what a terrible mistake right? i'm so glad speaking that our of... group like our group of friends weren't goths you know like we were like faux punk which is yeah. terrible in itself but at least we didn't wear like makeup and wear like upside down crosses that probably would have not gone over well at the uh, i mean Church.
0: it for sure wouldn't have no um speaking of uh makeup something i i heard recently is that um Back in the day, uh, there were Native American tribes that would take um, pumpkins and put them in like lakes and water sources that um, ducks and geese would be in until um, basically they got used to pumpkins being around. And then they would take one and like hollow it out and cut eye holes and whatever and like go underwater and have a pumpkin on their head and could just basically swim up to a duck and grab it. Wow. And that was a way of hunting. Um, also that transition had nothing to do with what I wanted to say. I just remember that that used to be a hunting technique and felt like letting everybody know.
1: Yeah. And they're thankful for it. Yeah. Our listeners right now are like, oh my God.
3: Yeah. I no, no so one much saw this is incredible. No
0: one saw that coming. So like when the apocalypse happens, if you're like, I have nothing sharp, um, I have no hunting tools. All I have is this pond of ducks and some pumpkins. <laughs> Don't you worry.
1: It's a long game play. It is no definitely doubt. <laughs> the long game. But eventually, you're going to be eaten like a king. So. That's right. So, um, today's guest is Dr. Alan Deusterhouse. We're so excited to have him. Um, what's wrong?
0: That's, That's the episode not, that just came out.
1: Just kidding. Oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> yeah. We got You got to scratch that, Brad. That was bad. That was bad podcasting. Actually, we have Pete You've probably heard of him. You've probably read three of his books.
0: Do you want to restart that star. intro? Or are you good with you what's happening right can now? Can take it, James. Are you can Are you pleased with what's happening right <laughs> I'm now?
1: I'm not pleased. Dude, I'm just trying to get out of it. I'm just trying to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm you're spinning in... my wheels on black ice right now like I'm in high school trying you're... to impress a girl. This is ridiculous. Are you in
0: segue timeout right now?
1: I am. I am. Oh. Uh... Someone else do it. I failed. I'm so. Everything is okay. I'm so sorry. I'm so very sorry for what just happened. My family's ashamed.
0: Let's. Um. <laughs> I think we need a, a a three second um moment of silence for David to think about what he's done. Oh no. <laughs> All right, and then we're back.
1: Brad, you missed out, man. Um, Ekklesia on Sunday night we're like right in the middle of worship and uh the slides go out like the powerpoint yep. just failed and we're singing songs and let's be real nobody at church actually knows the words like i know of course you do you it's impossible for you to forget things that's <laughs> your <laughs> that's what that's your burden okay
0: that's my burden um
1: so Brad I'm Toby's out I'm playing guitar Sharon's singing her heart out, and then we realize, oh, God, the slides are gone. And there's a lot of newer people that are Ecclesia that mm-hmm. haven't been there for a while, so we're we're kind of freaking out. Sharon takes the moment while I'm strumming the guitar to explain how people don't need to, to dwell on on the dumpster fire that is Ecclesia at this moment. I thought she did a pretty good job. You missed out, Brad. You missed out on some awesome awkwardness, but we, we played through it, man. We cut the last song a little bit short but we made it. We made it through. See, it's that
2: kind of magic that I don't get to experience because it I where I go is so produced.
1: Yeah, it's so perfect. We are not. We are I mean it's
2: literally timed. So they have to be out in like I think it's 18 and a half or 19 minutes or something like that. Hmm. So there is no That's the
1: Yeah, that's that's the norm for the for the bigger churches. I think yeah. uh elevation does that too and that's for
2: yeah that is that is that is some fun magic i remember those moments in you know high school and college when something like that would happen and normally something really nice something really nice comes out of that um a nice moment or you know people tend to see real the realness of it yeah which is cool
1: yeah Oh, we got real. We got real on Sunday night. All
2: right. Speaking of real, I am excited, excited for our guest today. This was a big deal for us to get this guest. I know that we booked it a few months in advance, so I actually wrote it down. I'd look at it every day and uh, be more and more excited. So, uh, But it's our guest. Who is our guest, Dave?
1: Alan Deuster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Pete Ends, man.
1: Dude, we got Pete Ends. The, yeah, the three of us Yeah, the three of us love his. I do
2: not know if that's his middle Peter name. Peter Gabriel Ends. But I really <laughs> I hope he's is today. Is. You heard it
0: here yeah. for, first, folks. Yeah. His name is Peter Gabriel. Peter Inns. Gabriel Inns. I really Inns. want his mom the to have
2: given him that.
0: Yeah.
1: No, we are really stoked, man. Um, the first book I, I had the privilege of listening to, because I also can't read, um, was For the Bible Tells Me So, which is if if you had to pick a book to start with of, of the wonderful books he's written, I would highly recommend that one. Um, it's going to make you see the Bible um, in a completely different light. You're going to see stories from, I guess, from the way that... Um, you know, top theologians um, dissect and look at these different stories. I mean, what's wild to me is that they can dig in and and see, you know, I guess enough changes in the in the text or how it's written to find out basically or to kind of conclude on whether or not okay, is this historical? Is this more of a poem, even though it's not going to be in a prose that maybe like the three of us would be like, oh, yeah, this is obviously a poem. Um, and he dives into that and then presents it to the layperson like me that that can take it and and think about it and hopefully not crush my faith um, while reading it. Because a lot of the things that he brings up is is stuff that you just didn't hear in church, you know, and I love that about him. And yes, Brad, we are absolutely privileged to speak with Peter Gabriel Enns, and uh, I can't wait for y'all to hear it.
2: So with that, let's go ahead and get into this talk with Dr. Pete Inns. <laughs>
3: All right, so we are here with uh, Dr. Peter Ends. Um, we're going to call you Pete because we don't respect your title.
4: And, uh um, you know, well that that's okay. <laughs> I mean, the only people that have to call me doctor are my wife and my kids, but everybody else can call me Pete. That's fine. <laughs> that's what it is, man.
3: Hey, that's it. That's it. Yeah, um, we are we are thrilled to have you on.
4: So of the so three much.
3: of us, James with the beard over here, is. Um, is we like to call him the Bible scholar of the group because he actually knows a little bit. And Brad and I are just completely clueless. We were just brought up in a church since basically we are children. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to start off with with you is um, the first book that I started with of yours was uh, The Bible Tells Me So. Mm-hmm. And um, it would have been really funny if you were like, that's not one of my books. <laughs> talking about I'm like, all right, cancel Cancel the recording. Um but no that that book was so challenging and enlightening um for me. Um because and much like I'm sure many of our listeners, it can be very difficult to wrestle with um the the warrior god of the old testament. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna give you a softball uh question before we do do some like hard hitting journalism, but um
4: should I be worried or what?
3: Uh, <laughs> no, not at all. I'd I would love for you to kind of overview why that stuck with you and why you wanted to bring that to kind of a mass audience that maybe aren't Bible scholars or may maybe more like Brad and I, who are just interested in the Bible and interested in our faith. Um, Do you mean like violence the
4: specifically? The, the God war. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah it's just yeah, just addressing what looks like two different personalities
4: between yeah.
3: God and Jesus Nazareth.
4: Well, I, I think one of the main reasons is, is because everybody's talking about it. And that and human sexuality are probably the two most common things that, you know, college students ask me about, because it's, it's just right there in your face. And, you know, I think first, it's probably fair to remember that, There are significant violent portions in the Old Testament, but there are other places, too, where it looks like that faith is already sort of evolving, let's say, or changing or developing in the Old Testament. And there are some moments of violence in the New Testament, too, you know, the book of Revelation, for one. So it's not like all on one side and nothing on the other. I do think it's a matter of proportion, though. Because, you know, there's really nothing in the teachings of Jesus about taking people's land and killing everybody, you know, or, or it's, it's hard for me to sort of square the flood story with the ministry of Jesus, right? So the, it creates tensions that people want to talk about. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's two gods or anything like that. I think it's more how God is presented by people at certain times and places in history, where how we talk about God tends to reflect just the world that we live in and how people talk about anything. And that's why we see a lot of the diversity in the Bible, too, you know, there's within the Old Testament, but also between Old and New Testament. So, so, I mean, that's really why I wanted to talk about it, because it's, it's like, it's the big elephant in the room sometimes. and. Or if it's not, then it's just sort of accepted as, yeah, well, this is fine. Yeah, but it, it just creates tremendous tensions with other parts of the Bible, and I think we have to try to explain it somehow.
5: Right. So in uh, in your most recent book, you talk a lot about like this kind of a development and movement through uh, how God is viewed and kind of uh, keeping God culturally relevant and how we interact with Him and kind of... Adjusting how we see God and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And something I've been wondering is with that and how um, there were these views of God in the Old Testament that were well, we're gonna win and kill everybody because our God's awesome. Versus turn the other cheek and we see both of these as God. So with these very very different ideas, it seems like fundamentally different ideas. As, as we are going through this progression of changing how we see God, what do we hold on to? Like, What's consistent?
4: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I laugh because it's, it's a common question. I think it's a very good question. And here I have to go a little bit Zen here and talk about things from a little bit different angle because I'll, I totally appreciate, you know, uh, James, what you're saying about holding on to. And. I'd like to suggest that maybe that's not the right language. You know, what do we hold on to to give us that sense of like, it's all going to be okay. Because maybe it's not going to be all okay for the time being. Maybe we have to let go of holding on to something and just trust in the presence of God. So if there's anything to hold on to, I think it's maybe God's ultimate goodness and not whether, you know, the Bible irons out, right? I mean, I, I, ho- I hope that's helpful. Right. I'm not trying to be obscure here, but no. I think so often our uh, the legitimate uh, legitimizing of our faith comes down to, well, the Bible works this way, and this is how it all works together. I'm not sure if that's the source of our faith as much as it is, you know, grace is a gift of God. And working within that, we get to struggle with these texts. And ask ourselves, yeah, I'm not really sure what to believe right now about God, the way God's presented in the Bible, but I still have, you know, if I can use the evangelical word, I still have a relationship with God. I'm still, I feel like I'm known by God and I know God. And, you know, so I think that's sort of like a different to me, that's a more satisfying way of framing this rather than holding on. Right. I mean, just for example, um, you know, I had someone say, a pastor once say that, you know, Pete, I, I hear what you're saying. I track with it. I understand that, you know, we can't really rely on what we think about the Bible, but but then still give me something to rely on, right? And that's missing the point. See, that's, that's just sort of like replacing one theology with another theology and saying, now I got it. That's the one I'm going to hold on to. It's an ever-moving target, our theology, our expressions, our ways of thinking about God, because God is much bigger than we are. And that's part of the journey of faith, I think.
5: So in that, um, <clears throat> you know, there's been so many movements um, throughout our lifetime and before that have used Christianity and God, like crusades and, you know, all the, all sorts of war and then purity culture and all of those kind of things as well all of those under the banner of well this is because this is who God is so mm-hmm. that's like kind of um, going back to the question with, with how do we navigate with those things where, right. you know so often i'm like well that that doesn't reflect jesus but does it need to
4: right where where do you draw the line in other words yeah. in terms of like are there any parameters for what you can say about God or not say about God. And I think that there are, right? And I think, you know, Augustine, for example, says, whatever doesn't promote love for your neighbor is bad interpretation, right? It's not telling us something that's true about God. And I do think that just profound, deep misunderstanding of the Christian tradition is not an excuse for going off and saying whatever you want. I think people can be corrected. Right, I think, you know. Again, I think if people say, for example, hypothetical, this isn't happening in our country at all right now, but people who say who who quickly combine the Christian faith with politics, you know, Christian nationalists, for example, um, the the history of the church is so, you know, at least its interpreters have, have been so very clear, and I think. It's such a major theme in the New Testament with Paul and the book of Revelation, by the way, that you do not combine the kingdom of God with the kingdom of men. That's like Bible 101. that's Christianity. You, you just don't do that, right? So so I think you can critique on the basis of um, not verses necessarily, but of like trajectories and large themes of the Bible, and then also, you know, the wisdom of the of the church, not that that's going to solve everything, because some things you still have to say, I'm not really sure if, I'm not sure whether this falls sort of within or outside of the parameters. But I think if people are of goodwill and are trying to figure it out, you can have those conversations. It's more people who just dig their heels in, in, uh, in, in looking at the Bible in ways that's ultimately self-serving that's ultimately private kingdom building. And I think those things can be critiqued and I think should be critiqued.
3: So you uh, you kind of mentioned a little bit of this when you think about the church and the state um, joining forces mm-hmm. and think of theocracies. And then I love on in your, in your most recent book, you, you go through the kingdom of Israel, you go through the, the ups and downs that uh-huh. start with King David and then kind of diving into these names that I don't know but I appreciated it anyway <laughs> of, of the, uh, when <laughs> when uh Israel breaks into to two different nations right and you could you could almost argue that the Old Testament is also a perfect example of what happens when men try to take the reins of spirituality and apply it to government. And apply it to nation states. Um,
4: I think you're right. That's the irony because monarchy yeah, it's doesn't utter work.
5: Failure. Right, it <laughs> is.
4: Monarchy did not work, and even within the Bible, there are there are fundamental critiques of monarchy from within the Bible itself. And and um, Walter Brueggemann, who's you know one of my favorite Old Testament theologians, he he says that essentially when the Israelites set up their monarchy after being warned by Samuel and God in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this is a bad idea this is going to get you nowhere um, but they did it anyway and 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 Brueggemann says that this was essentially recreating the egyptian empire because solomon had to enslave his own some of his own people and force them into labor to do things they didn't want to do because if you're going to build a kingdom you got to build a kingdom you have to have a standing army you have to have administrators you have to have servants You have to have people who farm fields for people and who cook for them and dress them and all sorts of things. People will be conscripted for things that um, God would not do, right? So it's, it's like you've got this shadow cast over the entire monarchy before it even starts because the first king is Saul and then David and then Solomon and then it divides into two. And there are only basically two kings who don't really do bad things, Hezekiah and Josiah, which nobody really talks about. But for the most part, it's an absolute disaster. And the hope to reinvigorate the kingdom when they went into exile in the sixth century, then they came back. And there was always so hope by at least a core number of Jews to basically, you know, make Israel great again. That's really what it comes down to, to bring back the Davidic monarchy and to bring back you know the 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 glory days of David supposedly but that never happens you see it's like it's it's almost like the path goes in a very different direction because nationalism doesn't work you know theocracy worked in other nations in the ancient world but with Israel it just it was just a bad idea and that should be I think a both testaments. <laughs> don't seem very big on the idea of mixing God and and politics. And I don't I don't know why people don't see that, frankly, to be a little snooty about it.
3: (laughs) It's interesting because it it obviously plays into the utter disappointment that is Jesus Christ from a from a Jewish standpoint, right? Right you're thinking about when you're thinking about we're looking for this Messiah. That's going to overthrow Rome. Mm-hmm. That's going to take us to the glory days. That's going to give us the kingdom right. that God always promised us. Right. That's like, mm-hmm. isn't that the narrative? And it, it pulls me to how hard it was today to hear my three and a half year old ask me and my wife, why did Jesus die on the cross? He asked me that today. Why, why did Jesus die on the cross? Did you tell him because I was out to get all of
5: us? Yeah.
3: <laughs> No, no, oh. I didn't. Yeah. But that's so that's my question to you right now. Why did yeah. Jesus, my three and a half year old's going to listen to this, why did Jesus <laughs> die on the cross?
4: First of all, your three and a half year old needs to be punished severely for asking difficult questions that they should not be asking <laughs> at this stage.
3: He got his mom's brains. So that's the problem. Yeah, that's asking the problem. Right. Asking really I mean, difficult
4: questions. The thing is that I wonder if it's I mean to get to your question in a second, I wonder if it's okay to tell a child that that is a very good question. And and a lot of people really think about it. And it's 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 a little bit difficult and and you know, you might be able to say something just about God's love, you know, which probably is will not satisfy a precocious child, but it's at least a start. Um But if you ask me, I'll be be very blunt with you guys. I remember sitting in my chair maybe four or five years ago just reading something, and the idea just popped into my head. I don't really know why Jesus died, and I'm not sure if it's easy to articulate that. And I was fine with that because it's okay not to know things. It's okay to look at things all over again from a different point of view. But there are, you know, there are different theories of why Jesus, is, what, what the atonement did, Jesus' death on the cross. And one of them is the very popular one today, that God is so angry, he's got to unleash his wrath and, you know, get his pound of flesh for sinful humanity, so he gets it from Jesus. And then God's wrath sort of, you know, subsides and everything is, is copacetic. But I think that's such a very difficult thing to square with, you know, God loves the world and gave his son. It wasn't a sacrifice people make to God. It was something that God gave on behalf of humanity um, to, well, to do what? See, that's the question. Some people say it's to be a moral example for us. Others say it's to give us victory over death which are both good. There's also the ransom theory, which was very old. But, and if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, you, you may have seen this with um, how Aslan pays the white witch the price to get Edmund back. And if your listeners haven't read that, go read it now quickly, the whole thing, you know, seven volumes. Yeah. it's great. Um, but, you know, it just there are different theories because the Bible itself is – it, it it gives different angles on what that's even about, and what you know. My own take on it, why I think this, it's a difficult question to answer, is that you know, Paul, for example, he has he has a faith in Jesus and Jesus's resurrection, and that's what started Paul thinking about, like why would God do this, and then. You have to explain why rising from the dead is something that God's supposed to do when nobody saw that coming. There's no hint of that in the Old Testament. It's just like, what the heck? So I think Paul, you're you're watching Paul work things out, like the significance of the resurrection. But then you have to move back and say, well, why did he die? Right. And not just die, but why did he die the way he died? And the language that I think was available to Paul and the New Testament writers, because they're Jewish, is the language of Jewish sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifice. So Jesus is like a sacrificial person who atones for the sins of the people. And that's the language that they have available to them. It's um, There are some Jews who talk like that. About the martyrs and their deaths before the time of Jesus, that so their blood is so precious, that it actually atones for the sins of the nation. So, you know, Paul's not making this idea up. It's it's part of the of, of the climate. But I think um the mysteries of the faith are basically they come down to Easter weekend. And it's and it, it is a mystery, and we can parse it out as best as we can, but there's always going to be a counterpoint or a counter argument. And um, I'm happy just to sort of let that go. The one thing, not to be long-winded here, the one thing I would say, though, is the question is not just why did Jesus have to die or why did Jesus die? The question is why did he die the way that he did? Because he could have been run through with swords. He could have been, you know, thrown off a cliff. He could have been trampled by chariots. He could have died in many different ways. But he died actually a humiliating death, which is the point of crucifixion. Is not just to kill you. There are many more efficient ways to kill people than this. But this is a a shameful and humiliating way to die that's meant to set an example for others. Don't follow this person. You're going to get the same thing. And then the question is, why was that such an important way theologically for Jesus to die? Why would God align himself with shame? And that's the thing, you know, New Testament theologians will say how that's, this is not the way to start a religion in the first century. If you want it to catch on, you don't align your founder as someone who dies a criminal's execution by the Roman Empire. And it's so paradoxical, it's so utterly ridiculous, it's rather attractive to me, quite frankly, that this thing would even get off the ground, you know, so... I think, to me, that, that's an aspect of crucifixion that I'm really interested in thinking about and, and trying to understand myself. And um, and it makes sense of some things that Paul says, like in Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God for salvation for all those who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And I always grew up thinking that, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel means don't be afraid to witness to your friends in the in the lunchroom line or something. but Paul doesn't say, I'm not afraid to talk about Jesus. He goes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why would he be ashamed of it? Because of how it starts. You know, he's, it starts in a shameful act that paradoxically, Paul says, it's in that shameful act that the power of God is actually revealed. So for me, the crucifixion is paradoxical. It's, it's, it's by design difficult to understand. You just sort of like rest and try to understand without feeling like we have to get on the bottom floor and work it all out. And it now makes perfect legal sense. I think, I I think that's actually minimizing the, uh, the crucifixion.
2: I can already hear some of my friends, maybe even family members that would immediately come back and say, well, Jesus died the way he did because wasn't it was predicted is I think there are some that believes that it was predicted in the old Testament. Is that true?
4: Yeah, it's it's there's no um, there is no prediction of Jesus dying the way that he did. I think probably what um, you're thinking of is probably Isaiah 53, which is that passage. It's called you know we call it the suffering servant passage, where the servant basically suffers on behalf of others, and the question is. Who is that servant in Isaiah chapter 53? And this, you know, we could talk for half an hour about just this, but bottom line is that you know, many people, and myself included, think that um, the servant is now hold on to this for a second, again, the servant is those Jews who went into Babylonian exile. They were punished for the sins of the nation, and then they come back and their punishment um, takes care of the nation as a whole. And I'm not making that up. There, there are many people who think that something it, it's maybe that's not the best explanation, but that's the one that makes the most sense to me. So uh, it's not a prediction of something that's going to happen hundreds of years later, right? Biblical prophets when they talk, they're talking to their time and they're saying, this is what God is up to, and here's what's happening. And that portion of Isaiah is all about the return from Babylonian exile. So, you know, the punishment has been paid, the people have suffered in an exile, and you know, um, they were bruised for our transgressions and things like that. They were bruised for our transgressions. Okay, if if the exile, and this is this is the, the way you know the, the old testament talks about the exile, if the exile is God's punishment on the people for disobedience, and only a small handful of people from Jerusalem and Judah were actually taken exile. It isn't like the whole nation was cleared out and taken into exile because people were working the farms or whatever. They have to stay there. The Babylonians don't want an arid land. They want it to be farmed and, and lived in. So they only took the elite. They only took the powerful. They only took the famous, and they brought them into Babylonian captivity. Okay, if the Babylonian captivity is punishment for the sins of the people, how can the sins of the people be atoned for if not everybody's there? If only a handful of people are there. See, that's the theological conundrum. So the answer is, well, their punishment did something for the whole, right? So in other words, I don't think it's talking about Jesus at all. I think it's talking about something that's very relevant back then in the sixth century. Now it can be applied to Jesus. Certainly. There's no question about that. You can say, well, what Jesus, uh, what Jesus is about looks really similar to that. Um, That's, there's no problem in in my mind with that, but calling it a prediction. I I think that's, that's a non-starter for me. It it has to mean something in their time. That's how prophets worked. Mm. The, uh, the
5: other point, that I've I've heard people claim as predictive was uh, Psalm 22 because of Jesus saying, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" As right, a supposed right. reference. So, what about that one?
4: Well, it may be that Jesus is doing there what he does a lot of times is just quoting Scripture when it's relevant, right? So, I, I think that um, that you know Jesus is giving voice to his own suffering his own sense of feeling forsaken by god by citing the bible we do that too by the way you know we i think people who know their bible do that all the time but i'm not saying well the bible must be predicting me right i'm just i'm using the bible to give to articulate something that i'm feeling or thinking at the moment and that seems to be what jesus is doing with psalm 22
3: we've got a fun question for you
4: Okay.
3: I didn't script this. I didn't script well,
4: this one out. I'm so far. These are these are wonderful. Oh, uh, these <laughs> are
3: they're these, fun for me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No. I'm. Yeah.
2: Oh, I'm 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 living it up right now. I'm, I'm, I'm locked this. in right now. Yeah.
3: I'm actually about to email your assistant and say we're going to need more than that. But um, <laughs> why do we only know really about Jesus of Nazareth from thirty to thirty-three?
4: Yeah, good question. Is that Um,
5: accurate?
4: Yeah, roughly. I mean, it's really hard to know. I mean, people say, how long was Jesus's public ministry? And the answer is typically three years. Because in John's gospel, three Passovers are mentioned. The Passovers once a year. That doesn't mean three years, though, if you think about it. Right? So Christmas 2019, 2020, 2021, that's not three years, that's two years. It could have been two years, right? The other Gospels only mention one Passover, so maybe it's one year. Nobody really knows. The chronology of Jesus is maddening, you know. We have some clues because of when Pontius Pilate was ruling and when Caesar Augustus and all these, you know, and when Herod the Great died and all that. We, we have a sense of, like, roughly when Jesus lived. but But the main point is we only really have about his adulthood, right, except for that one story in Luke when he's 12. You guys remember that one? He's um, the parents came down for the Passover, and they went back, and it wasn't just them because I'm sure caravans of people went because it's dangerous. So they're like halfway home, and they're like, "Where's Jesus?" Where's I Jesus? don't know. I thought you. Where's were. Jesus? <laughs> yeah. So they go, "Oh God!" Oh, went all the way back to grab him, and he's lecturing the priests in the temple, you know. But that's about it, you know. And and um, and the other question. I mean, it's it's even more serious than that, David, because. Why do only two of the Gospels talk about his birth? Mark doesn't talk about it, and John doesn't talk about it. So it's like the early stuff was probably inaccessible to the Gospel writers. I think that's probably the simplest explanation Mm -hmm. because, frankly, nobody cares about this Jesus guy when he's a teenager, right? And nobody's going to say, I can't wait for him to grow up because he's the son of God. He's going to die on the cross. It's like Jesus, when he became public, well, then he became public. And, you know, gospel writers are writing probably a generation or so after the time of Jesus, a lot of time to reflect. Luke fills in something about when Jesus is 12. Matthew and Luke have a birth story that's very similar, but also very, very different. But the main heart of it is Jesus's public time and when he's speaking. And that's the thing that interests people. You could also ask why Mark doesn't even have a resurrection really at the end. He has he has sort of he alludes yes. to a resurrection story but doesn't have it. I love like, that it's people, added into it. So yeah, amazing. the longer ending was added in clearly, in the, probably in the third century. People say clearly borrowing stuff from Luke and John to sort of like we can't have the story end this way. Yeah, but yeah. The, see there it is too because it's like the gospels are different. But where they're the same is pretty much the point that you're making is that they really stick with his adult life. Because, you know, they're not trying to write a history of Jesus, like a modern biography. They're trying to proclaim what is the gospel. And that really starts with Jesus' baptism, which is where all the gospels, basically, that's, where, that's when you really start talking about Jesus seriously. It's with the baptism. And then it's often running from that point on.
3: Well, one of the Gospels doesn't even say that Jesus is baptized, right? If you, if it, John I mean, if does not man, say he's actually
4: yes. baptized, but there's a scene where John the Baptist, you know, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but he's not baptized, and but he so is in the others. And the question is, yeah. what the heck's going on? Because, uh, I mean, there, my opinion, I mean, for what that's worth, and I'm not alone in this, but, you know, John's probably the latest Gospel written in a certain context. We're talking about Jesus getting baptized for his sins. Probably wouldn't fly very well. So they tell the story differently. With the other Gospels, it seems like Jesus' baptism is really more like a coronation. It's his crowning moment, right? It's, you know, um, uh, this is my son. my, my, My son listened to him. And son of God language in the Old Testament, we know this from Psalm two and, and a bunch of other places. But to call somebody a son of God oftentimes means you're a king. That's that's royal. That's royalty language. So one way of understanding the baptism scene, when the heavenly voice says, "This is my son," listen to him. It's it's in a sense a coronation of Jesus as you know the king of the kingdom of God, which is now present with the people. So it's interesting, Jesus' baptism is not for the remission of sins in any of the Gospels, even though it's that for everybody else. I find that one of these interesting things just to think about and talk about.
5: It's sad that only one of the Gospels lets us know that John was faster than Peter as well. Yeah, I wonder which
4: one that was. Can you repeat that?
5: I I feel like it's sad that uh, only one of the Gospels lets us know that John was faster than Peter. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, a question I have from—I I love the explanation that you give of uh, how the Bible—the point of the Bible—is for wisdom. Yes. And so there's so much of it's not about being literal, um, and you know, not not worried about like going through the facts and everything, which is why the Gospels can so many different stories or perspectives or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So, with that, how do we
4: know... We don't, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah.
5: How do we... Do you feel like the books that uh, make up the Bible have somehow more authority or capability of teaching wisdom than any writings that are done now? Or... Can God speak with the same authority and capability of teaching wisdom that He did through? Yeah, I,
4: I think that's a good question. I, um, I mean, it, again, I, when I, I don't, I don't mean to sound evasive, right? But I think a lot depends on what we mean by authority, and we tend to think of like authority as a top-down kind of authority. But what if God's authority is an incarnational kind of authority, like together with humanity as we spiral forward into this existence we call life? I mean, for example, to have a Bible that's authoritative, it's like, you know, I don't want to make a move without engaging the biblical tradition. I may debate it. (laughs) I may have to sort of put this part maybe against this part and sort of way, you know, what are, what's a better way to go forward, but I'm actually engaging it. And that is, that tells you a lot of, uh, of what's important in your life, right? What is authoritative. So that's a different kind of authority. You know, when, when you read a really, really good book, whatever it is, you know, I always think of the Lord of the Rings because there's so many interesting things that happen there, but there are scenes in that story That can be very inspiring. And you go off thinking not so much, I'm going to be one of the riders of Rohan and I'm going to kill orcs, literally. It's more, it inspires you to live a life of courage, right? And in, in that sense, that book has also become sort of authoritative for you, right? Now, that's a very different way of thinking about authority than I think many people sort of assume, which is sort of a rule book kind of authority. But the problem with that, and that's, you know, that's one of the points of the last book that I wrote, um, How the Bible Actually Works, is that the Bible is very diverse. And to sort of boil it down to a list of rules actually disrespects a text that has such diversity in it. And it's the diversity in it that forces us really to ask the question for ourselves, how are we seeing God today? How are we seeing God in these stories of old? How does that translate to today? That's very much a wisdom endeavor, but that is recognizing the authority of the Bible, just authority understood in a different kind of way.
3: I think one of the challenging things for the three of us being brought up in the Southern Baptist tradition in Oklahoma, is that we heard time and time and time again that God doesn't change. God never changes. And then we were also taught that the Bible is narrative, And right. the Bible is supposed to be believed through and through. Mm-hmm. you are supposed to trust that these stories, like the Genesis story, and parting the Red Sea, that like this all literally mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. And then as we go through our faith and we learn new things and uh, we listen to people that we trust and you start to kind of reorganize some of those beliefs and then you let some of them go and then you still try to hold on to some of them. I think so many people struggle for making mm-hmm. the move the Bible is authoritative in the sense that it's literal and inherent. And then once you start looking at the four gospels and you're like, right. Ooh, these are very different. <laughs> you know, clearly there is some sort of cue source that they that they took from. There was a lot that overlaps, but also, yeah, you know, a lot that's different. So, what do you do with that for 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 people who their faith is really built not on God but but on the Bible
4: or theories of how the Bible is supposed to work, right? So, yeah, and I, and right. you know, I do think that this is it. It creates. A lot of cognitive dissonance later in life when you've been taught to think about the Bible in ways that the Bible, forgive me, clearly and self-evidently doesn't support. Because you have differences of opinion and you have things that are just seem very outmoded. And, you know, we don't think like that anymore. We don't we don't think uh, that the earth is is flat, which at least the Old Testament writers certainly thought. They're, they're really a, You can't really question that. Uh, it's not a round globe, right? Um, they're, they're, we're, we're reading something from a long time ago that the pressure is always on us, so to speak, to instigate a conversation between our time now and the time back then. And one of the points I make in the book is that this is actually, a, we're not the first ones to do that. It's always been that way. In fact, even before the time of Jesus, Jews were looking at earlier ideas, earlier texts, earlier stories, and changing them but to make more sense for their time and place. And a great example is the Book of Chronicles, when you compare it to the books of Samuel and King. So it tells the story very differently. So um, I think I think part of the problem is that. People are, and these are good people. I'm not, there's not bad people who are trying to distort the truth, but they're just, they're learning things the way they're taught. But they're being set up for a faith crisis because then they're also told, make sure you read the Bible every day. And so you do. (laughs) And you realize, wait, there are four gospels. I can't really line them up. And people have tried and you can't do it. And you have two different histories of Israel in the Old Testament Chronicles is one, Samuel Kings is the other. And you have laws and Exodus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus that talk about the same thing, but you really can't square them. They have different perspectives. And, um, you know, it's just you can go on. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two creation stories that really don't align very well. And that's part of the character of the Bible that we have. And, and I think it's better to, instead of to sort of impose a theory onto it of how it should work, just try to read it and and read it from a point of view of trust and curiosity, that you get to explore this stuff, and not with the view that if you don't hold on to these 15 points and these further 15 subpoints for each of those 15 points, if you don't hold on to all those things, you, you have no reason to believe in God. And I hope that's not true, because... That does not describe an awful lot of Christians that have lived in the history of Christianity. Christianity is an experiential religion. It's not a logical religion in the sense that you can prove it. It's really rooted in our experience. And then we then engage the tradition from the point of view of that experience and that faith. And then it grows, hopefully, while also being challenged. All
3: right. So, should we blame the Germans and the English for the way that they viewed the scriptures and how it screwed us all up?
4: Well, I mean, if we want to blame, there's probably a lot of blame to go around,
3: but... Um,
4: you <laughs> Let's could start blame. listing who
3: we're blaming.
4: Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, some Germans, at least in some English, you know, the Enlightenment, uh, that didn't help. The Protestant Reformation didn't help because it elevated the Bible to a certain role that it didn't really have before then. Um, and, and the precision, you know, when you treat the Bible, as an object of study, which is what happened, you know, really beginning in like the 17th and 18th centuries, especially. Um, And you look at it with those really sharp, fine-tuned scientific kinds of eyes, and you start seeing all these problems. And the reaction to that stuff especially like in the 19th century in the wake of like Darwin and biblical archeology span and some other things. um, The reaction to all that was just to hunker down and rather than to engage some of the stuff that people were talking about, but that's, you know, in America, at least we very much have a legacy now that's about 150 years old and longer now of reacting to the modern world. Our faith, we're reacting to it. And that really comes down to the Bible. When you have things like archaeology and linguistic studies that people have done for hundreds of years, um, or at least for generations, um, that put the Bible in its historical context pretty well, that doesn't square very well with um, sort of a simpler kind of surface reading of the bible that doesn't really interest not interested in history as much as just reading the bible for what it says and those two things collide and but i do think we, we set people up for having these kinds of crises and talking about the bible because if it's not just so then the whole christian faith falls apart right and that's that's the difficult thing like like, why it doesn't have to you know god is real god's You know, I think bigger than the Bible, God's beyond the Bible, and we can meet God in the pages of the Bible. But as soon as we think we have located God in the pages of the Bible, something's going to happen to you sooner or later to sort of shatter that belief, to realize that you're, okay, that was helpful for a while, but now you're just sort of like containing God in, in in a box that makes you comfortable. But that box gets shattered because God's always outside of that. Right? and i think the bible actually encourages that very process of seeing things like i think god works like this and that getting shattered just're like what am i going to do now you know how can i make sense of the world but then something else comes along that helps me make sense of it a little bit better that's just the way of it you know and um if people are are raised to think that way they're not going to have the same sleepless nights that others have because the bible simply doesn't work the way they were Taught it's supposed to work.
5: So, with the idea of God being real and how that works, I mean, through through the Bible, they not only point out that there are other gods, especially in the Old Testament, but that they they kind of give them credit for things like oh, yeah. it's over. Like growing up, especially when uh, when Moses was talked about. You know, they talk about him throwing down his staff and him eating the other snakes. Not the fact that the other guys made snakes out of staffs, mm-hmm. or the Zoroastrian priests mm-hmm. that could read astronomy and find out that Jesus was born, right. or right. the uh, the guy that you mentioned in your book who um, sacrifices his firstborn born yeah. child. So Israel should, loses right. the war. You yeah. know, just there's a lot of times where not only are other gods mentioned, or like. Mm-hmm. A, pantheon, or gods ruling over other ones, um, and that they're, they're capable. Um, mm-hmm. So all of that's in there. So why do you land on those aren't real, but the God of the Israelites is?
4: Um. Well, probably only just because, you know, as Christians and as Jews, where the story goes after that, I think, you know, in, in the Old Testament, you s- Almost everywhere, it's assumed that other deities do exist. It's just that Yahweh is the best one and can beat them all up, pretty much. That's that's the way it is. Um, Something happened, and this is, you know, we don't really know. It's hard to trace this. But sometime after the exile, probably maybe even during the exile, but in the centuries that followed, we move to like a true monotheism. On the part of Jews. Again, we don't know what instigated that. We can't trace it. And then, certainly, by the time you're in the New Testament, it's like it seems for the most part really, really clear that there is only one God as far as Jews are concerned, as far as Paul's concerned, as far as Jesus is concerned. And if we could trace that, we would know a lot more about the ancient world and why things happen. But yeah, again, you know, the Christian confession is that. You know, Jesus shows us what God is like with greater clarity than you see elsewhere, right? And that's why, you know, Christians typically say, I don't think Jesus wants us to take over other nations and, you know, just kill everybody and take their land, even though that's in the Old Testament. Yes, I I guess, though, you know, James, you're asking maybe a slightly different question if I'm thinking about it. Like, why, why land on that one instead of any of the others? Yeah, I think that's just because that's how the story kept developing in, you know, say the thousand years from David to Jesus and then the 2000 years since. And I'd probably say the simplest answer is that's just the tradition we're a part of. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I (laughs) I don't know how else to answer (laughs) it. You know, (laughs) I I just don't think there's a storm God. But here's the thing, too I don't think Israel's God causes storms. Right? right which the bible does talk i don't i don't think it works that way i don't blame ancient people for saying that they're not they're no. not they're not in error they're just ancient right there are all right. sorts of things that i think about god that are plain old wrong i just don't know it right cuz i mean we're right. so human we're locked into our humanity our limitations right mm. but i think we're living where we're living and uh you know i'm very aware of the fact that had i been born someplace else like not in the West, would I be on a podcast right now talking about the Bible? Probably not.
3: Right.
4: Yeah. Probably not.
3: So to wrap up, uh, <laughs> Pete, thank you so much for spending time with us. Sure. Y'all uh, straight up go listen, uh, listen or buy um, How the Bible Really Works. Um, the three of us just finished that one. I love sin of the sin of certainty. that's another one that helps us uh, get off of our high horse and challenge our deeply held beliefs in order to um, hopefully progress in our connection with the, the living God. Yeah you have your, you have your podcast, which is the only one that's divine on the internet.
4: Tell me the name yeah. of the
3: podcast again?
4: The um, <laughs> Bible for normal people.
3: The Bible for Normal People. Love it. And uh, y'all support him. But thank you again, man. We really, really
4: enjoyed it. Alrighty. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it.
0: And that was our interview with Pete Enns. David? Wasn't
1: it lovely? <laughs> that guy is a freaking trip, man. Um no, I I was He is a sweet baby boy. He is life. a sweet baby boy. Um super kind. I mean, the three of us were really really uh stoked that he would come on this pod and um just answer our answer our questions, right? Like Yeah. The many of his books have had a huge impact on me. Um, It actually makes me feel like I'm somewhat like mildly competent when it comes to the Bible after listening to him break it down. Right. I spent a lot of times with James, a lot of time with James and he definitely helps me kind of understand different passages. You are my other pastor besides Mike Dixon. Um, But like, I mean, navigating things like Sodom and Gomorrah or, the Adam and Eve story, or even the story of Moses, like he goes in depth, breaking those stories down and talks about like archeology, you know, archeologists and like, what have they found? Like what, what in the, um, in the earth's history lines up with these stories. When we look at other, other tribes, other powerhouses that also took down histories And we cross examine that with Jewish history, like what lines up, what doesn't. And like that sort of that sort of insight makes it much more easier. I mean, much more easy for me to get excited about the old testament still. Because I mean, I'm sure I was in probably college when I was really examining this, like what seemed like a warrior god mentality. Um and trying to make that connect with the Son of God and having real serious difficulty with that. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm not alone. I mean, there, there are plenty of people that leave the faith because they just can't square those two deities. Right. You know, we're taught about the Trinity. We're taught about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and how they're all one, but they're separate, but they're one. And yeah.
0: you're like, how does that work? Right. So something that I really like is, it, I mean, along those lines, um, it feels like when reading the Bible or talking to people who have grown up reading the Bible or have tried to get into it, um, there tends to be this way of reading it that's everything's literal. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, the Bible says that I believe that that ends it kind of idea um i have that and then there's then there's people who are the complete opposite side where they're like wait some of these things don't historically line up or there's conflicting information in in the bible and so obviously it didn't happen and so it's this idea where there's one group that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but yep. then there's another group that's just leaving the baby in the bathwater. <laughs> like neither one is good. Right. Um, and I feel like what his work does so well is going through and saying, we can deconstruct, take apart um, these ways that you've read them before and say, well, no, this doesn't hold weight, but instead of leaving it there and basically, landing on well then the bible doesn't have value he still holds the bible up as having a lot of value but not being something to be worshipped it's an in-between thing where um the bible is not itself like to an extent where it's almost treated like the fourth part of the trinity um and instead of that it's more of a spotlight to help you understand how to interact with God, how other people have interacted with God. And this is their story of what that looks like. Um, and I, so I feel like it's it's a great thing to read through his different books and be able to um, not feel like you have to set aside science and history and all that sort of thing to get something from the Bible because it, it has value. And it has um, different literary styles, like you were talking about. There's apocalyptic literature, there's poetry, there's all kinds of stuff. And so just um, while pulling apart the way we've read it, it's not disrespecting the Bible, but trying to treat it more respectfully.
2: Yeah, I mean, listening to Pete ends on his podcast, listen, reading his books, I think you guys kind of joked about it with him while we were talking to him, but at first it was quite a shock to the system to read his books or listen to him in a good way, but it was quite a shock to the system because it took a lot of the ways that I had always seen the Bible. And when I because I was in that camp that I started seeing inconsistencies and I started reading things that weren't necessarily what was always presented in church. And I started doing all this and I was, I don't want to call it that I was in a free fall, but I was, I was close to free falling of, you know, deconstructing and and all of those things. It was, it was close to being a free fall and I think I was close to kind of hitting bottom there. And then reading his books helped bring it back to life and same with Rob Bell books. And I think that I was so, so excited that he was as nice as he was, as charming as he was, as engaging as he was. And honestly tried to answer each question. It may not have been the answer we thought he was going to give. It may not have been the answer that even we may have wanted, but it was his honest answer. And I can, o- I can only appreciate that because it's it was amazing for him to take some time to speak to us. But
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, a great thing about him is that, he did give us honest answers even when it was, I don't know, you know, or, <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah. believe this cause I was born here. Uh, you know, yeah. that kind of thing didn't feel like I need the really elegant answer or the one that's going to make people feel better it was this is just, this is honest of what I
2: understand yeah. here. Yeah. One of the questions I think that we asked that's for Patreon was me telling him that one of the things I like about reading books by him and reading Rob Bell books and things is that when they tell these stories, they tell them as if you're reading a novel and that you're reading a nonfiction book or that you're reading, you know, it's, it's like an overarching picture that becomes a story within itself. And I remember I asked him, I said, you know, how how can people change the way they're reading the Bible to be able to get to that way of, of being able to see those stories? And I like that he said, he goes, you're not going to like it, uh, <laughs> but you just got to read it a lot, basically. Yeah. And yeah. I thought that was, I mean... Yeah, there's not a that quick makes fix. makes sense. Takes time. Yeah, it's, it's not a quick fix, which... Is in some ways maddening, at least it is to me. I'm not I'm not someone that just I'm not someone who relishes in reading something over and over and over and over and over. Uh right. So but I appreciated his honesty and and all of that.
1: Yeah, his latest book, How the Bible Actually Works, um really focuses on seeing the collection of books that is the Bible as wisdom literature, which for me was extremely helpful in diving back into these old stories that were presented to me as a child and like rereading them and seeing this like earnest, honest attempt at this tribe of people that turned into tribes of people trying to communicate and then also express their interactions with this invisible God that they didn't even use a word for. And like being in 2020 with technology, with our extensive understanding of how the world works, um, like trying to put religion and science together in the same bucket and, and see them somehow coexist. Like it makes it that much more palatable and exciting to see these people that had a limited vocabulary that had a limited understanding of how the world and the cosmos worked trying to express their, their hope, their anger, their sadness, like their love of this deity. Um, And then also how they had to take the framework that they'd seen used in all these additional gods and use that language to explain their God and try to differentiate their God from other gods, which, mm-hmm. again, gives a different kind of spin on why the God of the Old Testament seemed to be so ruthless at times. Um,
0: And it's like, maybe he wasn't, <laughs> you know? Um, right. It, yeah, it feels like so much of the Bible is people trying to figure out what God's like. By trying to interact with God. And it feels like now we try to figure out what God is like by just reading this book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it feels kind of lazy. Um, And it feels like, uh, like we've taken just such a sharp turn away from the way everybody in this book that we revere did it was actual personal experience and navigating Mm. and trying to figure out how to love people better. And now it's, let's not figure out how to love people better. Let's figure out what this says and try to stay. Let's try to get into heaven in this realm of what we're told. Um, And it just feels like we, uh, we aren't wanting relationship with God to continue. We're just wanting to replicate what some other people did.
1: Well, thank you so much for, for listening to this episode. We love y'all and um, show us you, you kind of like us too. follow us on uh, the social medias, interact with us. Let us know if you have any ideas for future episodes, but yeah, you can go to uh peanut <laughs> Do you like how I said that?
0: It like you said penis or oh. we're about to
1: say penis. No, but that would be funny. <laughs> Pete ends.com um, check out and please freaking buy he, most of his books, if not all of them are on audible um, how the Bible actually works. The Bible tells me so um, the sin of certainty, just three of his many books that you can check out. He is incredible. He's got a lot of videos too on YouTube
0: and a lot yeah, of extra check him out, content check him out on YouTube and his podcast Yeah, are two great ways as well.
1: But yeah, thank you all so much again for supporting us. With
2: well, that will end this episode. I'm Brad Steer. I'm Mr. Pumpkin. I'm I'm the Duck. <laughs> Brad
1: does not think we're funny. <laughs>
0: Brad's like, there's uh, so much editing okay. for
2: this episode. <laughs> uh, it's gonna be okay, people. <laughs>